It's wonderful to worship God together. My name is Kevin Livingston, and I teach in the seminary, and I'm also a part-time pastor in a little church called Clarely Park Presbyterian in Scarborough at Pharmacy in St. Clair. And I'm delighted to share God's word with you today. And uh, before we read scripture, let's pray. Lord, I pray, would you now silence any voice but your voice and help us hear that one voice that brings us life and liberty and wholeness. Even the voice of your son, our Lord Jesus, speaking by your spirit through the word. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, I'm going to read to us a passage from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14. A couple of stories. And um, in my tradition, at the end of the reading, I'm going to say the words, This is the word of the Lord. And I want you to say, Thanks be to God. Okay? So let's hear God's word in Matthew 14, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down in the grass Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the water. Then the disciples saw him walking on the lake, and they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried, out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. 
You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Well, friends, our reading today features the wonder-working power of Jesus as he feeds a large crowd of people with an abundant, miraculous meal of bread and fish. And then after the disciples have gone ahead of him on the boat to the other side of the lake, Jesus walks on waters and causes the high winds to stop blowing. But let me begin by telling you a story. Back in 1867, the famous American writer Mark Twain was on one of his visits to the Holy Land, and on this trip, he was accompanied by his wife. And they were staying in Tiberias on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a moonlit night, and the weather was perfect, which gave Mark Twain the romantic idea of taking his wife on a ride in a boat out on the lake. So they walked down to the pier, and Twain saw a local man sitting in a rowboat on the edge of the lake. And he asked the man, how much would he charge him to row them out in the water for a boat ride? Now Mark Twain was dressed in his usual white suit, white shoes, and white Texas-style cowboy hat. He was a sight to behold. And the local man, not knowing who Mark Twain was, assuming he was some wealthy rancher from America, said, well, I guess it's about $25. Now, friends, in 1867, $25 is a lot of money. And Mark Twain thanked the man. And as he turned away with his wife on his arm, he was heard to exclaim under his breath, Now I know why Jesus walked. (laughs) A few years ago, there was a popular book by pastor and author and a guy I went to seminary with, actually, John Ortberg, by the name of the title, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And that title reflects the uh, the emphasis that lots of sermons take on this story from Matthew 14. I could preach a sermon like this. Peter had the right idea of getting out of the boat and quite literally stepping out in faith. Indeed, in all of our lives, we can see Jesus standing out on the stormy waters of this world, bidding us to come to him. Like Peter, we too should should heed this invitation. We too must answer the call and find the courage of faith that we need to swing our legs out over the boat and then step out onto the water. And if we do, then we'll walk to and with Jesus, trusting him alone to help us do great things for God. But beware, don't have any doubts, don't have any fears. Don't pay attention to the winds that are howling around you, that the waves that are lapping up against your legs. Keep your eyes fixed on the master. Because if you do, then in his loving and confident gaze, 
you'll find the strength and courage you need to stay upright. Peter failed to have enough faith, but you can do better. So if you're facing some big decision, if you're sensing God calling you to the mission field, if you're wondering how you can share your faith with your neighbors or loved ones, then you need to have the guts to get out of the boat, to take risks, to put your full faith in Jesus alone, and then walk on the water. If you want to walk on the water, you got to get out of the boat. Dearly beloved, here ends the sermon. Or maybe not. This is a way you could preach this message, but it's not the only way, and I want to submit to you this morning, it's not the best way. Because when it's interpreted this way, putting the stress on Peter and the amount of faith he had is putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. It's focusing on the wrong person. Interpreted this way, Matthew 14 becomes a kind of model for Christian behavior, of obedient living. It becomes moralistic advice. Interpreted this way, Peter's initial faith is to be emulated. His subsequent failure and doubt are to be avoided. Do this, don't do that. If you behave this way, if you don't behave that way, then you're good to go with God. But friends, this way of interpreting the story makes the bottom line message of the sermon, if you do it right, then you too can walk on water. Jesus even wants you to walk on water. He wants you to be just this bold in faith. The alternatives are fear and doubt. We all know those things ought to have no place in a believer's heart. Friends, when the story is interpreted this way, Walking on water is about your courage and your faith and your boldness. In fact, this phrase has come to mean something like that even in non-Christian circles. If you Google walking on water, if you do an internet search on that phrase, you'll find that it's been picked up by a number of marketing companies and motivational speakers who use that image of walking on water as the goal to which businesses or their individual clients should aspire. And in that sense, walking on water is like other adages, like the early bird gets the worm and grab the tiger by the tail or think outside the box, or in this case, outside the boat, <laughs> or when the going get tough, the tough get going. And at the end of any sermon with this kind of focus, I think that most of us who listen to those sermons feel worse about ourselves, worse about our faith, about our commitment to Christ. Or maybe, maybe we'll feel motivated to give this whole walking on the water thing a try, but we sense even before we get home from church, we'll probably give up or decide not to do it after all because we actually make an attempt or if we do make it, we'll start to sink immediately just like Peter did. Friends, I think a lot of preaching these days makes people feel just worse about themselves. Or preaching makes people feel motivated 
but the whole focus centers on my own effort and human achievement. Either way, those kinds of sermons don't radiate with the grace that constitutes the good news we are called to proclaim. So is this moralistic, try-harder way of understanding the story the only or even the best way to interpret Matthew 14? I don't think so. Now before I share with you a new way of seeing this text, this familiar story, let me be clear about one thing up front. It is surely right that Christian faith, our faith should be characterized by courage and zeal and a firm resolve to stay true to Jesus in all situations. Whether or not this particular story teaches that is something we can ponder, but let's be clear up front that the act of learning to trust Jesus fully and completely in every situation of life is something we should all aspire to. But having said that, what's really going on here in Matthew 14? Well, like the other gospel stories having to do with boats and storms and disciples, I suspect this incident is kind of an acted-out parable about the church, and it's for the church. Indeed, you could argue this boat is a symbol of the church, a metaphor for God's people in which disciples travel with Jesus across the storm-tossed seas of an unbelieving world. But if that's true, then what role does Peter play here? How do Peter's actions and his words relate to the rest of us who are living on this ship of faith we call the Christian church? The answer to that question emerges from the story itself. Just before this account of the winds and walking on the water is a story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and it's basically a Lord's Supper kind of story showing Jesus as the true bread of life. Although the food and drink the church offers to the world looks rather modest, if not meager, five loaves, two fish, in the hands of Jesus it becomes an utterly satisfying banquet, an abundant buffet with 12 huge basketfuls of food left over. As it turns out, we in the church have more, more than enough to offer the world if only we believe in the power of Jesus' word to us. Well, no sooner is this Lord's Supper kind of meal over than Jesus now sends his disciples into a boat. He doesn't go with them at first, but the implication is clear that he'll catch up with them soon enough. Meanwhile, Jesus wants to pray. Why is that? Well, the larger context of this story is that Jesus had just heard the news that his cousin, John, John the Baptist, his friend, his gospel co-worker, had just been viciously murdered by King Herod. That's what just happened if you read the early part of chapter 14. And after hearing this terrible news, I think Jesus wants to be alone right away. And so he goes to a lonely place where presumably he could grieve and, and shed a few tears and pray to his heavenly father in private. But the crowds follow him. And so Jesus delays his time of grieving long enough to do more teaching and more healing 
followed by the feeding of that large crowd. His call to serve the crowds of people got in the way of his personal feelings for a little while, but that delay hardly made everything better, and so Jesus is still longing to spend some quiet time alone. So he sends the disciples on ahead of him in the boat to the other side of the lake so he could have time alone with God to pray. We don't know how much time Jesus managed to have to himself, even on this second attempt at some private devotional time with his father. But before too long, one of those unpredictable Sea of Galilee storms blew in. And in this particular story, we are not told that that the boat was in danger of sinking necessarily. But then again getting blown around by strong winds and rising waters in the middle of a dark night is surely a frightening, if not a dangerous, situation to be in. So Jesus comes to them, and once he assures them, hey, I'm no ghost, Jesus seems poised to to get into the boat and to travel with them further. But before he gets there, Peter, good old Peter, intervenes. Good old Peter who so often puts his mouth in gear before his brains. (laughs) Lord, if if it's you, then command me to come into the waters to come out to you. Come on then, Jesus replies. And so Peter does. We don't know precisely how far Peter got before he started to sink. Two feet. 10 feet, 20 feet. Maybe a gust of wind started to knock him off balance or a larger-than-life swell made straight for Peter and suddenly the logic of this situation was too much for Peter and he begins to sink, (laughs) giving in to the inevitable tug of gravity. Jesus saves him, of course, and he chides Peter for his doubt but loving Peter, too, just as he always does. Then they both climb back into the boat. The storm stops, and even more quickly than it had started. And the disciples who'd remained on that boat all along end up doing the utterly proper act of worshiping Jesus. You really are God's son. Friends, what we have here are back-to-back incidents in which Jesus' lordship over all creation has been abundantly displayed. Jesus is the lord of creation, and so he can manipulate the sustaining things of life like bread and fish to feed people, even in a place of remote desolation and death. And now we see Jesus as lord of creation, in control of the water and the winds and the waves, Jesus can calm the elements of nature in this fallen world that threaten our lives as well as provide the things we need to nourish and sustain our lives. Taken together, those with eyes to see recognize in Jesus the very presence of God. Well, friends, I want you to notice One detail here that's supremely important. 
Because when he comes to them on the water, Jesus quickly calms them down with three short phrases that pack a mighty theological wallop. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. As commentator Dale Bruner notes, this is something that should be inscribed over the doorway of every church around the world because Jesus' call for courage and his command not to be afraid are both rooted in the second thing, I'm here. Now for the sake of good English, most versions of the Bible do something similar to what our NIV Bible, the one that I read from, does in verse 27. They translate Jesus' word into something like, it is I, or I'm here, or it's me. But you know what the original Greek says? Okay, you Greek scholars. Ego emi, I am. Take courage, don't be afraid. I am ego emi. Here you see, just like in the other gospels, this simple designation powerfully connects Jesus to the Yahweh of Israel. Remember when Moses asked God in the burning bush for his name and God says that his name is I am. Yahweh, the true and living God, the great I am. And here's Jesus connecting himself to this very same God. Ego emi. I am. Jesus is God. And that's why his presence can give us courage and in turn not be afraid. Friends, that's the good news in this text. Jesus remains with us. He remains with us as the Lord of creation as well. Whether or not Peter succeeded in imitating his master's special ability of walking on the water, neither adds nor subtracts from the core revelation in this text, the deepest truth that our passage is teaching us. That whether we stay on the boat with the 11 other disciples or we hop out of the boat with the one disciple, Jesus is with us. Ego emi. He's with those of us who stay on the boat and will calm the storms that threaten us. He's with those who try some spectacular faith stunt and fail, forgiving and and fail again, calming the storm that tempted Peter to do something miraculous. Dear friends, it's Jesus' presence and Jesus' power that are the keys to this story. Not whether we are bold enough or courageous enough or faithful enough. That's missing the point. To take the focus off of Jesus and focus instead on Peter's courage is, forgive me, to miss the boat. Barbara Brown Taylor, the great preacher, says in a sermon that if there is a miracle worth savoring in this story, it's not that Jesus could walk on water. After all, if Jesus is God, then the ability to walk on water isn't any more impressive than for you and me to walk up a flight of stairs. And the miracle is not that Peter managed to exercise great faith for a few moments. I mean, it's impressive, but that's not the heart of the story. 
No, the miracle is that when all is said and done, while a soggy, chastened Peter sputtered seawater out of his lungs, and as the boat continued to bob around in the dead of night of that dark, stormy night, somehow, in the midst of those humble surroundings, way out there in the middle of nowhere, the disciples realize that no one less than God's own son is sitting in the boat right in front of them. So they worshiped him. They believe. It's 11.59. So friends, if you want to walk on the water, you got to get out of the boat. True enough. And here and there, now and again, the church needs visionary, courageous folk who, who step out in faith to do something new and bold and courageous for the Lord. May the Lord make some of you be those kind of folk. But maybe there are far more times, far more times when life in the boat that is our church family, that is our our Tyndale family involves no more than faithfully pulling on your oar against the winds that are howling. Believing Jesus is near. Jesus is with us. And so pressing on with the task at hand. You press on in faith not because you've tested Jesus and found that he's lived up to all the hype, not because Jesus has enabled you to do something grand and spectacular. No, you press on because you believe Jesus when through the Spirit you hear him say, Ego me. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Ego me. I am. I'm with you. So keep pulling on your oars. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, for some of us, it is a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Essays remain to be written. Exams are before us. Final projects need to be put together. And it's kind of tense for others of us, Lord. We're going through a storm in our lives, in our families, in our relationships, at our workplace. And it's really hard, Lord. And it's so easy to be afraid and feel like we're all alone. But I pray, O oh God, that this word from your word would be a great word of encouragement to us. Lord Jesus, you are with us. As the divine son of God, you are present to us in all the storms of life that we face. And looking to you, Lord, in faith, we can overcome whatever life throws at us. So bless us all, Lord, with that new confidence inspired by your spirit in us through the, the living presence of Jesus, who is the very presence of God in our midst in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Go with God.